number 655. And certainly we're delighted for the presence of each and every individual that's here today. Thankful indeed that membership, visitors alike, and we hope that our worship service, our service in direction toward God will not only be encouraging for each of us, but far more important, truly magnifying that which is the name of God. You probably have already noticed on the slide that we'll continue our series of lessons today and should complete that series this morning, casting a spotlight on the family of God. I appreciate Andrew leading that song. You and I just sang it together about the family of God, highlighting some thoughts, and some of those will reappear as a part of our discussion this morning. This next slide is basically intended to just very quickly bring to our appreciation and reflection that which we've seen previously. God's family is glorious. Not because of us, mind you, but because of the patriarch of this family. God is glorious. Jesus is glorious. And they have put in place the most exquisite, the most glorious of all families. And you and I are truly honored to be a part of it. In addition to that, we notice that there are several qualities then of the members of that family. Not only the glory attached to that which we are, but things that you and I studied in detail, again in the lesson last Lord's Day morning. Today, we consider another set of attributes of that family. I hope you'll be encouraged and blessed as we think together about what it's like to be a member of the family of God. The first part of the lesson will surround the following topic. You'll notice that one of the things that seems so critically involved in God's family is submission. Now, I'd like you to think pretty carefully with me about this because it seems to go against the grain of what typically is asserted to you and me. By and large, people don't like to submit. We've got to appreciate the fact, though, that if we are to be a member of God's family and be so as He would have us to be, submission is a vital requirement. I somewhat found it interesting that this topic really occupied a part of the lectureship yesterday at East Main. It was also a part of this lesson, so I just kept it in there as it was. Look with me at the following. Wouldn't you agree that to enter this family requires initially an element in submission? I have to do what God told me to do in order to be a child of His. That requires belief in Jesus, John 8, 24. It requires repentance of sin, Luke 13, 3. It requires confession of the name of Christ, Romans 10, verse 10. And it requires baptism in water for the remission of sins. That's taught in Galatians 3, 26 and 27. No matter what someone may think, he or she is not a member of the family of God unless they've done those things. That's what the Bible teaches. And therefore, as I stand before an audience like this one, and every one of us can reflect on we've done these things submitting to what God says to do. But submission doesn't end there. Notice what comes next. Once we become a Christian, that means daily everything that we do, we strive to submit to that which has been and continues to be the requirements of Jesus. Jesus requires you and I each day to live in a way that's godly, in a way that's appropriate, in a way that glorifies Him. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? 
That's what submission involves. Let's look at a few of these verses. Let the mind of Christ be in you, Philippians 2 verse 5. That's only amplified as you notice that text in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5. We'll only notice a part of that, but doesn't it say that you and I are charged and challenged to bring every thought into captivity to Christ? What are you and I going to be thinking about tomorrow? What about Tuesday? Now I realize over the course of a day, many thoughts may cross our mind, but did you and I urge and strive to allow our thoughts to be brought into captivity to what the Bible has taught? If we're submitting to Christ, that'll be our goal. It'll be our aim. It'll be our striving effort. You see, submission then is an ongoing part of what you and I must do. There are many particulars, though, in which that submission is seen in verses like these. What about the submission to the elders of this congregation? Now, although that one seems a rather natural one to mention... Would you give it a passing consideration with me? You and I realize that under the prescription of the New Testament order, it has been the will of God and continues to be His will that each local congregation is led by these men, meeting the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And these men occupy a position whereby those who are among them are commanded. Did you hear me? I didn't say suggested. I said commanded to obey them. You see, they have been given the challenge and responsibility of leading that particular flock of God. And those who are members of that flock are commanded to obey them. Let's notice the wording of Hebrews 13, verse number 17. In that rather famous passage, the Hebrew writer put it in language like this. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. As you and I reflect upon the the implications of that passage, it is incredibly far-reaching. When the elders of a congregation, in their wisdom, their prudence, and their insight make decisions and determination. It should be our goal to conduct ourselves in response to their commandments so that they will not be grieved by our actions. You and I ought never to behave ourselves in such a way, bringing grief upon them. But you'll notice that verse began like this, Obey them. That's as clear-cut a commandment as any other in the New Testament. And therefore, when these gentlemen, these elders, for instance, give directives and statements that in their studied decision, in light of helping us journey toward heaven, we must obey them. Now, that has a lot of things. That means when the time for gospel meetings come and they have chosen a skilled and wise and godly man to bring those sermons, we need to be here. At every service, we can be here. It means on Sunday night and Wednesday night, God commands us to be here because they said we need to be here. It means, for example, for the Bible study hour on Sunday morning, we need to be here not only because of the benefit that it enjoins upon us, but because our elders have said we need to be here. 
the statement and prescription then of the Word of God, you'll notice in light then of our behavior in the family, we have been told, obey them. Now, isn't it interesting to reflect on, again, the responsibility that's theirs? Titus 1.9 commands that, of course, they lead always in connection with the Word of God. They aren't making decisions apart from the Bible, but prayerfully they make them in light of it, and you and I are told to obey them. That's just one element then in submission. I'd submit that our world so often takes a dim view of submission. Who are you to tell me what to do? I have my rights, my responsibilities, and I'll tell you what, I'm going to do it my way. If you and I feel that way, we're never going to make it to heaven. Never. For we've got to submit to Christ. We've got to submit to the elders. We've got to submit, as we're about to see, even to one another in various ways. Look, in fact, at what's next on the slide. Let's add in to the local authorities. The people of God in Romans 13 were given this, this commandment. The word submit is rather carefully included. I thought you and I would reflect upon it as well. In the 13th chapter of Romans, you might recall that here was a congregation of the people of God that existed in the imperial city of Rome. The Roman Caesar ruled there. It was the seat of the Roman government. And yet to that little congregation, Paul said this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. How much plainer could that have been? These Roman authorities, church, you submit to them. Be subject to them. Now we know that we ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. So anything they may say that contradicts God, we must obey God first and foremost. But so long as they do not, Paul said, submit to them. Now that today, of course, is still a vital consideration, isn't it? There are many things, for instance, in the particulars of those who occupy our government that you and I wouldn't agree with. We don't appreciate their stance on many things. Nonetheless, we honor the position they occupy. We do so understanding that God has given His stamp of approval on the nature of the office, the element of its authority. Though we may not agree with everything they assert, we nonetheless appreciate that at least the position of authority they occupy is of God. Paul said we must submit to them. You begin to notice then that this attribute of submission as a member of the family of God is a far-reaching thing touching the church. It touches, of course, the civil authorities. And not only that, it touches one another. In Ephesians 5.21, this particular passage has much to say about the family of God. I would only ask that you notice the brevity of it and at least a few passing thoughts concerning it. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now maybe it's a fair question, so how is it we are to submit to each other? For we've already learned our elders occupy a position granted in authority to them, and yet there is something special. The family of God submits to one another. In love we encourage, 
we edify. We strive to manifest a godly example always before one another, and we're there to exhort and to warn when anyone needs that, but also to compliment and to commend when that also would be in order. But isn't it true in, the, in Philippians chapter 2, that same idea is presented like this. It says, let nothing, verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. May I say that we can encourage and submit to one another by appropriately being knowledgeable of and setting before the needs and characters of those which are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There, of course, we do that in unity. We do that as we set before the perfection of Christ. Interestingly enough, this submission perhaps brings us to think about a matter of example. A matter of example. I'd like to challenge each of us with this question. If everybody else in the church behaved like me or you, would the church be better off? Would it be stronger? Would it be an organization that would be more dutiful in regard to its responsibilities, or would it be weaker? Would it be less apt to do that which would please God? What do you think? I say that because in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, this statement is made. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in faith, in purity, in charity. Now all of that highlights, now just because one isn't young doesn't mean the latter part of that verse is any less notable. An example of the believers. Are you and I an example when it comes to submission? Submitting to Christ? Submitting to the authorities? Submitting to the elders? Submitting in all the ways that would be consistent with the Word of God? Being a part of the family is a great thing, isn't it? highlighted in the reality, among other things, of the submission which it exemplifies. How are you and I doing at this? It is truly something to consider, isn't it? The attribute of that submission, I suppose, leads naturally to the next element in our, in our lesson this morning. And for that, I'd like now to ask you to consider carefully four things rather quickly about the nature of being a part of this family. Specifically, what we want. You know, a family tends to be known for something. Maybe this family has a particular talent or skill. Well, may I say, what are we known for as the family of God? Let's begin rather quickly by noting this observation. A moment ago in Ephesians 5.1, it was said, Be ye children of God. Now, as that assertion, as that statement was made... It now notices for us the following. One of the things then that as children of God, what does God want? What is it that is most notable about the great God that we serve? First of all, you and I should have an unsurpassed desire for salvation. There should be nothing in your life or mine more important than salvation and what attaches to it. And if anything else is more important than that, then we're guilty of idolatry and we're guilty of sin. 
let's develop some of these thoughts about salvation. Why don't we begin in 1 Timothy 2, 4. The God that we serve, this great statement about Him is made, who will have all men to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth. God loves each person and wants that person to be saved. So if that person's lost, it's not because God didn't want the person to be saved. It's because of that person's desire not to be saved, or at least their, their failure in light of it. God wants all men to be saved. To that, we may well quickly note 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I have a question then. On those days when the great flood of Noah's day came, now we noticed here God wants all men to be saved. He wants all to come to repentance, but yet only eight souls were saved aboard the ark. What about all the others? Did not God not want them to be saved? Oh, that wouldn't be true. God did want them to be saved, and Noah preached to them. For years and years he preached. Problem is, they didn't want salvation enough in faith and in confidence to do what God through Noah said to be done. And today, when you and I think about desiring salvation, look at that verse then that comes next. God made arrangements for the possible salvation of one and all. In 1 John 2 verse 4, we read, speaking of Jesus, He died for the sins of the whole world. Now let's face it, that's a lot of sins. <laughs> if you think about every sin that every human has ever committed, the Lord's blood is capable of forgiving it. The Lord's blood is capable of covering it so that that individual can be forgiven. But the simple fact is, you and I, of course, should have, if we're a part of God's family, we too have this wonderful appreciation and desire for salvation. Do you want to be saved? Then we need to do what God says to be done and do it unquestioningly. But may I say that also means we should have a desire for others to also know about that salvation. No wonder Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. We see that embodied in the livelihood of Paul and Peter and others who they themselves preach that gospel. A desire for salvation. As members of the family, we've got it. As you and I close that slide... What else does it also demand? That one goes hand in hand with this one. Members of God's family cherish the thought of celebrating repentance. Let's develop that thought like this. We've just noted that God wants all men to be saved. That means He wants everybody to repent. Again, Luke 13, 3. But that thought of repentance. Notice... How should you and I view repentance? Well, may I suggest some of these thoughts come to mind. There's no question the Bible demands it. No question God requires it. But in the requirement of that repentance, notice this. Heaven rejoices at it. 
I realize repentance doesn't always need to take place only when a person walks down the aisle of a church building. But have you ever thought about how heaven reacts when an individual repents? We aren't left to wonder about this. How does Jesus the Son and God the Father and how do the angels react when a person repents? Luke 15, 7 says the angels rejoice when that takes place. May I submit to you, can you imagine celebration in heaven? Can you imagine how wonderful that must be? I would suppose that heaven's a wonderful place all the time, and yet there's something to be noted about the joy that they exhibit and the joy that they, in fact, share when repentance takes place. May I submit to you that, of course, should be characteristic of you and me as citizens in the family of God. When a brother or sister in Christ who is wayward repents, it ought to be a happy, happy occasion. When that individual who perhaps has wronged you or me, and this person one-on-one -on -one comes and says, I'm sorry. I do want you to forgive me. I apologize for what I said. I didn't know all the facts. I said that without thinking. And I want to make sure that everything's right between you and me. You and I should rejoice when an occasion like that happens. We ought not hold a grudge. We ought not be somewhat sad in the disposition that the person did this. We should be happy to forgive them, thankful that they repented, and wonderfully ready to accept them as a brother or sister in Christ again. Now notice, that's what we do as members of the family. Let's add to that this. Jude verse 24. Near the end of that little one-chapter book of Jude, this rather fantastic statement is found. Notice how it relates to this topic before us. Jude, verse number 24. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It's the latter part of that that captures our attention. Not just joy, exceeding joy, the text says. In light of all of that, look at number three. What else would be characteristic of you and me as citizens in this family? Well, again, notice what God does. How quick is He to extend mercy? I might call to your attention Ephesians 2.4. There, as Paul was delivering that tremendous description of those who, again, had been dead in sins, he says, but God who is rich in mercy... Mercy has been defined like this. It is the consideration in which one does not give what is deserved. Now think about that. God does not give what is deserved. When you and I are guilty of sin, we deserve punishment. We deserve eternal punishment. And yet He extends to us in mercy salvation through the blood of Christ. That's mercy. He does not give me what I deserve. Maybe you have been the recipient of mercy on a few occasions in your life. Did you ever do something? And maybe you deserved a whipping. But your dad or mom maybe extended mercy because they could sense in you at least an element of appreciation that you understood the magnitude of the moment. Now maybe they didn't always extend that mercy, but when they did... 
they sensed something that was behooving of it. May I say, we serve a God who is merciful. Through His Son, He doesn't give us what we deserve. But that means that you and I as citizens in this kingdom too should desire to extend mercy. I've listed some of these verses for you. In Psalm 86.5, the mercy of God is highlighted in a grand way. And it leads me to note in Luke 6.36, we are commanded to be merciful. How quickly then do you and I jump on the case of a fellow Christian? Before we even perhaps know all the details, we are ready to cast judgment without ever hope of extending mercy. Well, we're told on that occasion that we, of course, must, if we are to be His children, extend that mercy. We've learned then about the need for repentance, and we've learned about, of course, the extension of this mercy, but one more. Number four, and that'll close our lesson this morning. I'd like to highlight what may seem obvious, but I only do so because the Bible seems so often to do it. As members of this family, God's family, we have a keen respect for what's right. Now hear me, please. I know that the world tries to define in its own image what's right, but we are not the least bit interested in that. What's right is ultimately determined and dictated by the God of heaven. He determines what's right. We then have to respect that. I mentioned earlier in the lesson today about that as we proceed through our daily walk of life, there are many decisions we face. Have you ever pondered, how do you determine what is and what is not right? Who is it to say it's wrong for two men to marry? We know that's wrong because God says it. That's the only way we know it. How do you know it's wrong to steal from somebody? The only way we know that's wrong is because God's book says it's wrong. We have no right to dictate ourselves. If we're all left to our own consideration and opinion, then every person can define for himself what's wrong or right. That's chaos, among other things. You and I know the only way we know what's either wrong or right is because God says it. And therefore, as you and I study the New Testament, we have to honor and respect everything that's right as God has defined it. Look at some of these verses quickly. In Ezekiel 18.21, Even in the days of the Old Testament, the God of heaven lifted high that which is lawful and right. Well, how, my friend, do you know this? God says there is because it's what I've determined to be lawful and right. Today, in the consideration of our economy, the consideration of our country, the determination of what's right, it seems, is degenerating more and more to let each person determine for him or herself. You and I know as citizens in this kingdom, we will never feel that way. What happened in the day of Judges when every man did that which was right in his own eyes? Well, we know the kind of mess it made, and we know how lawlessly everybody chose to live. We, on the other hand, as citizens in this kingdom, will always respect that the Father determines what's right. We'll honor His will, doing what He says. Didn't Jesus say in John 8, 32, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That knowledge is perhaps seen 
in the fact that in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, when Peter stood before Cornelius, he said to him, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that worketh righteousness is accepted of him. Now there he said in every nation, be we here, somebody in Japan, somebody in Australia, it doesn't matter. What's right is the same for everybody. Aren't you thankful for that uniformity? As you and I close that slide, we note this. There's a strong tendency, I submit, for us to make exceptions, to try to justify our behavior. Well, I know the Bible says that, but... This particular occasion was worthwhile of an exception. May you and I be awfully cautious. What exceptions did God make in Ezekiel's day? What exceptions did the Lord proclaim? I don't find many exceptions, do you? He encourages us then in uniformity to understand that what we may think are exceptions are really sinful violations. May you and I always respect what's right as He has dictated it and live in, a, in harmony with it, we will not only bring honor to the family, we'll bring honor to God. Let's close that slide with that one last verse, that one last statement, I should say. If we respect what's right as determined by God, then may we conclude it's never right to do what's wrong. Never. There's never an exception to that rule. In conclusion, we've studied for three weeks about the family. We have found it to be a glorious topic. We have found many particulars of our behavior. And today we've highlighted submission. And then from that we've highlighted these implications of it. I would ask that we each in rather careful examination ask, how are, how are you and I doing as citizens in the family? Are we bringing glory to the family? Or are we somewhat rebellious in any aspect of it? You know, rebels are not spoken of very highly in, in God's family. What happened to the angels who sinned in Jude verse 6? Well, we remember in 2 Tim Peter 2, 4, they were cast out and are held to this day in chains of darkness awaiting the final day of judgment. God didn't look upon rebellion very well, and that was citizens... In, in heaven. My friend, may we never rebel, but always do what's right, extending mercy, doing that which was pleasing to God. If today you have never become a Christian, see what you're missing out on. This family is the one going to heaven. We don't want you to miss out on that. God doesn't want you to miss out on that. If you never obeyed that gospel, why not today? May I say, that requires, again, your belief in Jesus, your repentance of sin. It requires your confession of His name, and it requires your baptism. But as you are baptized, He adds you to the family. May I say that once you're in the family, enjoy all the privileges of that membership, and that means you have responsibilities like we've noted for three Sundays. If you aren't being dutiful with respect to them, you realize there's, there's need for repentance. Come back to your first love, would you? God wants so much for you to be saved, but He's given the terms and it's up to you and me to be faithful to them. 
Today, if we could help in rededication by praying to God on your behalf, we would love to do it. You've got to repent of those sins and confess them, and we'd be happy to pray for you. If we could be of assistance in any way today, we'd love to do that and do it now. Well, together we stand and while we sing.